Briefly, we want to let you know that you'll find the most current legislative updates at the end of this program and after the presentations. Hello, I'm Mike Walsh, your host of Vance's SoCal Military News and Views, an essential podcast for those who want to know more about the lives and needs of active duty and military veterans in Southern California. This is episode two, The Colonel, with Colonel Daniel Whitley. For those that uh, weren't able to join us for the Vance Monday meeting, which happens the first Monday of every month, we had an opportunity to hear from the commanding officer of headquarters and support battalion on Camp Pendleton, Colonel Daniel Whitley. And Colonel Whitley gave us an opportunity to hear about the future of the Marines with the Navy. It was one of those fascinating stories that if you weren't there, you missed something. So for your benefit, for our podcast audience, we're going to ask the Colonel to uh, share that information with us again. And first and foremost, good morning, Colonel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, very happy to have you here. Our folks may not know a lot about you, so let's at least uh, give them a chance to hear what, uh, where you came from, where you're about. So give us a little bit about your story. Okay, a quick overview. I'm an artillery officer by trade. Um, spent most of my career here in the West Coast with 11th Marine Regiment. Uh, so not new to Camp Pendleton at all. I think I've got 12 years total on Camp Pendleton. Um, outside of my time in the artillery community, I spent time recruit training down in San Diego. I've done some time on recruiting in New York, my home state. Um, I've also done a tour in the Pentagon, uh, working on the joint staff for the chairman. I uh, spent some time training with the Navy down at uh, Expeditionary Warfare Training Group Pacific in Coronado, and I've been in my current job for the past year. Outstanding. Welcome. Thank you. As we heard on uh, the first Monday meeting, uh, there's an awful lot of changes that are coming up for the Marine Corps, and really, without further ado, what I wanted to uh, offer is the opportunity for you to share this with our audience. Can you share with us uh, some of the things that are changing for the Marine Corps? Okay, sure. Well, there's a lot changing, uh, so I'll try to capture this uh, as succinctly as possible. Uh, but I think, you know, watching the news, it's it's not hard to see that, you know, the global war on terrorism, you know, if we're not writing the final chapter, we're already in the epilogue of that. Uh, so I won't get into details of kind of what's happening there in Afghanistan, uh, but that's soon coming to a close, which I think everybody could see. Uh, but there are Marines that are committed there on the ground. Uh, one, one of the units is actually here from Camp Pendleton. I was forward deployed with a Marine Expeditionary Unit. And the rest of the forces come from a Marine Air Ground Task Force, uh, Special Purpose uh, MAGTAF, out of Central Command, a crisis response force. So as we you know, shift out of the global war on terrorism, obviously the strategic landscape is changing for us. Um, so to better align with the national security strategy, national defense strategy, um, we're looking at, okay, what does the future Marine Corps need to look like to meet those threats? And if you look at those documents, the number one threats are China and Russia. Uh, and I will say largely where the Marine Corps is going is, you know, how do we compete with a peer threat, largely a adversary like China? So as we get out of the global war and terrorism phase, we're going into more of a global power competition phase, something that we've actually been engaged in for, for decades. Uh, our adversary surely has been at it uh, with some of their malign activity. Uh, but we're now finally actually committing to it and making it public and knowing that that's where we're at. Um, so what does that mean for us? So for us, that means um, pulling out of, you know, combat operations, so to speak, into a more competition phase. Um, you can call it gray zone, if you will. So, you know, what are, you know those, those things 
that is somewhere in between steady-state diplomacy and full-scale conflict. So think influence ops, perception management, uh, intelligence collection to close some intel gaps we have, condition settings, uh, and those kinds of things uh, with messaging. Uh, and really a lot of those things that we're looking to do is with our known adversary, specifically in the Indo-Pacific uh, area responsibilities, what are those things that we can do to buy down risk should we go to full-scale conflict or uh, potentially provide off-ramps to escalation uh, so we don't go to high-scale uh, conflict? So in, in order to, to get after that problem set, you know, the commandant, when he took, took his, uh, his position a couple of years ago, laid out his commandant's planning guidance uh, in the summer of 2019, which for the Marine Corps is probably one of the most revolutionary documents we've seen, at least in my time in the Marine Corps. Uh, but basically, he laid out his vision for what the Marine Corps of 2030 should look like in order to fight and win against a peer competitor like that. Mm-hmm. It's very much uh, closely integrated with the Navy. Uh, it is a naval solution to that problem. It's not just a Marine Corps uh, problem. It is a Navy and Marine Corps and naval uh, problem. And the, the, the critical assumption, I guess, in that whole planning document is that it's going to be a distributed maritime fight. So unlike what we've seen in the past where the Marine Corps is out there conducting operations ashore, uh, with the Navy in support, well, you know, flip that on its head. Now you have the Marine Corps basically at sea or going out seizing and defending key maritime terrain in support of the Navy. Mm-hmm. So now you have green in support of blue, uh, not vice versa. So that's a paradigm shift for us. And to do that, um, we've got to kind of take a, a look at how we train, how we structure ourselves, uh, capability development, talent management. There's a whole lot of things that go into that. And that's kind of what the commandant laid out there. Uh, in his, his force design, his commandant's planning guidance. So I'll, I'll touch on, on some of those areas uh, up front, uh, but it's a, it's a different, unique fight uh, where our forces are going to be basically within the enemy threat ring right now and where some of our forces are forward deployed. So how do we develop a force that is resilient enough uh, to survive within the enemy's weapon engagement zone? And then how do we you know, build and project combat power into uh, that weapon engagement zone in order to be a stand-in force for the Navy. So how can the Marine Corps go out there and assist the Navy by doing sea denial in support of the Navy so the Navy can ma- manage its sea control fight to keep the sea lines of communication open in that area of responsibility, which is so vital to global commerce throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so talking on, on the force design piece, uh, one piece of it is the structure piece. Uh, and up front, the Marine Corps is going to decrease in end strength. Okay, we're about 182,000, give or take, right now. Uh, we will probably settle around 175,000. Uh, and largely, a lot of that is due to fiscal reasons. Uh, just to do all the things the Commandant wants to do, what we need to do to fight and win in that environment in the 2030 Marine Corps against a pure threat, we need certain capabilities we don't have now, whether it's sensors, platforms, widgets, et cetera. Uh, and our biggest personnel course right now comes from people. Uh, so it's kind of a trade space where we're going to reduce the end strength in order to gain capability in certain areas to make us more lethal. Um, so bottom line, the end strength of the Marine Corps will decrease somewhat. Um, it probably won't be very visible to people around here at Camp Pendleton. Yes, there will probably be a couple thousand less Marines at Camp Pendleton, but you know, roughly 50,000 Marines aboard the base, it's probably not really going to be seen. Mm-hmm. But with that, um, what is there, the composition is going to change as well. So we have some units that are going away. Uh, that are really in that future fight are kind of obsolete. So I think tanks, tanks are already gone from the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our MP, military police units, have already disbanded. The artillery community is changing writ large, and I'm an artillery officer. Uh, so a lot of our towed artillery systems, our cannon systems, are being replaced with uh, rockets and missiles and different variants of that in order to give us a 
or long-range precision fire threat that's applicable in a distributed maritime mm -hmm. uh, environment. So there's a lot of different changes there. Cyber is taking on new importance. As we're in this competition phase, you know, in operations short of conflict, that becomes even more important of looking at um, non-kinetic means of imposing your will on the enemy and or to conduct influence operations. So a lot of the units that we have now are going to be restructured, refocused, different capabilities, different military occupational specialties will grow. Some will decrease. Um, we'll have more unmanned vessels as well, uh, both aircraft, uh, surface vessels, et cetera, mm -hmm. to utilize communication systems, sensors to move logistics from one place to another. Uh, but things that would uh, buy down risk for the commander by using unmanned um, vessels, et cetera. How about training-wise? Navy, Marine? So I, I I'll get to that in a second. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but at the end of the day, we still retain our core mission essential tasks. So the things that the Marine Corps is doing now, you know, think of Marine Expedition Units out there, forward presence, joint forceful entry capability, you know, crisis response, humanitarian assistance, those kinds of things. Those will still remain. However, we will pick up additional tasks with this new mission of supporting some of the emerging concepts, naval concepts that are mm -hmm. out there now, you know, distributed maritime operations, uh, operations, expeditionary advanced base operations, littoral operations in a contested environment, all those kinds of things will build, will, will have to create, and we're in the process of doing it now, of building naval doctrine, Marine Corps Navy integrated doctrine to go out and do those new tasks in an in integrated manner between the two services. Wow. Some of that is just, you know, developing a common language of how does the Marine Corps, who's used to conducting Marine Air Ground Task Force operations, integrate into the Navy, who's, con you know, conditioned to work under a composite warfare commander construct. Mm -hmm. They're similar, but they're different. Um, so it's kind of a new ground for the Marine Corps. Um, some of our units are going to be, for one, called different things, and they're going to be structured differently. Uh, they're going to have different tasks. So... Some of our units that are forward deployed in the Pacific now are going to transition into Marine littoral regiments. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Marine units that are capable of operating in the littorals in a maritime environment in support of the Navy. Um, those Marine littoral regiments, they'll have an infantry component to it, a battalion. They'll have an anti-air defense battalion component to it. And they'll have a logistics component element to it. And, oh, by the way, they're also going to have some organic lift capabilities, surface vessels. Right. That'll be jointly manned between Navy and Marines, something mm -hmm. we have not seen in the past but those vessels will get them into theater and intra-theater lift uh, within um, that weapons engagement zone I talked about earlier. So kind of a, a paradigm shift for us about how we're structuring, what capabilities are going to be you know, required to go do that. So with that, obviously, the training piece mm -hmm. uh, changes. So I don't think you're going to see much difference in the train at basic training, at recruit training. Mm -hmm. We've integrated training gender-wise on both coasts now, so that's a change. Uh, potentially you may see one consolidated location for that, I think, in the future. Don't know where or when that's going to happen. Uh, but right now, it's, it's a big burden on the Marine Corps to put female drone instructors on both coasts. So more to follow on that, but I, I think there's a potential that we may consolidate just for a, a cost-effectiveness standpoint. But with the training aspect of it, the entry-level training pipeline beyond recruit training, I think, is where you're going to see the most changes. And we're, we're seeing changes now. So, for instance, School of Infantry, where Marines go to after recruit training, whether they're an infantry or non-infantry Marine, the infantry Marines, their uh, program of instruction changed from eight weeks to 14 weeks, and it's going to grow to 21 weeks. So they will get more training on some of these sensors mm -hmm. we're developing that, you know, typically sensors that were maintained at a much higher level are now being pushed down to the squad level. Mm -hmm. um, some of the small unmanned aircraft platforms are being pushed down to them, 
And also they're going to get more amphibious training, small boat training, et cetera, to operate in those littorals that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So that's one way entry-level training is, is changing now. As well as all our professional military education for you know staff, non-commissioned officers and officers, uh, you'll see more of the naval integration piece of this. So the naval lexicon, if you will, for composite warfare commander operations, getting everybody on kind of the same sheet of music as far as speaking the language. I think that you'll see that change, too, as far as professional development goes for all Marines across the service, regardless of rank. So that that training is, is changing now. Okay. So at Camp Pendleton right now, we're, we're trying to work with what First Marine Expeditionary Force, the you know, three star command at Camp Pendleton, who's, who's really the warfighter who we're in support of. So we're waiting on them really to define to us what their requirements are. They're getting new pieces of equipment. As I mentioned, they're going to get unmanned aircraft. They're going to get long-range precision fires capability to put rockets and missiles at far greater ranges than we're capable of now. Mm -hmm. We're going to have small and large unmanned aircraft that we don't fly right now that we're going to get. So we're looking to modernize the facilities you know, to support that, not only to house them, repair them, maintain them, aboard the base, but also to employ them in a training environment. As, as many of you probably know, most of our service level training exercises right now go out at 29 Palms. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to, tr to train to a distributed maritime environment out in the desert. Uh, yes, I don't know any Navy <laughs> officer who's willing to take his unit out to the desert to go train and simulate a maritime environment. So we're looking at different uh, venues to hold training that's applicable to an amphibious environment. Mm -hmm. I will say that a lot of that's probably gonna be virtual which we're already doing now with a lot of our, our Navy partners, it's more cost-effective, get the staff training. And oh, by the way, some of these platforms and capabilities we're going to be employing are very expensive, and some of them just due to the, the classification level that they operate on is going to be very hard to employ in a training environment. So some of those things will change as we bring some of those platforms, et cetera. We'll be looking at kind of new ways to go train in, that, in a naval capacity, you know, a joint integrated Navy-Marine Corps team going mm -hmm. out and training. So that, that will change as well. Um, so more to follow on that, but that's what we're doing on the base right now is trying to identify, okay, we know you have these core mission essential tasks, these core plus tasks, so to speak, mm -hmm. to go out there and operate in that distributed maritime operating environment. Okay, what, what is that going to require? So we can kind of shift how we're doing business to be able to support the needs of the warfighter. Okay. On top of that, uh, the Commandant's also looking to age the force. So he's looking to get more experience than at lower levels. Mm -hmm. uh, just for instance, you know, for sergeants now at the four-year time and service requirement, that, that wasn't the case in the past, unless you're a meritorious uh, promotion. Um, mm -hmm. So he's looking at getting more experienced, uh, a little bit older, more mature uh, people in some of the sergeant squad leader uh, type billets out there across the force. And then with the different structure changes and some of the different MOSs that are going to be coming up in the cyber fields, the small UAS, you know, we're bringing in some more fifth-generation fighters, think F-35s, uh, et cetera. That'll obviously age the force because some of the people that operate and maintain that stuff are going to be a little bit more senior mm -hmm. in rank. So those are some changes we'll see along the way as well in order to kind of meet the demands of what that 2030 force is going to look like. So okay, that was that was a lot. So hopefully that, uh, <laughs> that addressed most of what you're looking for. And you said that a 2034, so that's the time frame that we're looking at. So this at is point. largely a 10-year project, uh, and I, you know, one man's opinion, but I think it's probably going to take even longer than that to, to actualize a lot of what the vision the Commandant laid out was for. And as you know, you know, program side of things for new capabilities, new platforms, et cetera, it, it's not really a timely thing to happen. 
And obviously, there's fiscal restraints uh, with congressional authorizations, et cetera, to go out and do these kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, at, at minimum, it's a 10-year project to see this through. Some of those things, changes have already occurred. Okay. Tanks w- went away really fast. The MP units went away really fast. Within a couple months here, some of those long-range precision fires I mentioned, will we start feeling those. Um, the new uh, amphibious assault vehicles, they're in the process of being fielded here right now. Um, so some of the stuff's already happening, uh, but it's, it won't be a fully operational capability until 2030 and probably beyond for some of the things that we're looking to do. Do you see bringing on tech-based talent to be one of your biggest challenges going forward? It will be. Uh, so we, I know at the service level they've had discussions of potentially bringing in civilians to fill some of these positions. I don't think a decision was ever made on that, but obviously some of these high-tech fields, cyber, et cetera, and some of these platforms are going to re- require very intricate skills um, that are you know high demand but low density. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the Marine side, those are the people we have a, a challenge retaining as well. Mm-hmm. They obviously have a, you know, a critical skill that's very marketable on the outside of the Marine Corps. So that presents challenges for us in many ways. One, recruiting people to come into those jobs who, are, who have the qualifications or, or the potential. And two, once we do have them, we train them. Now they're fully operational in whatever that tech field is, retaining them when you have a, you know, a corporate sponsor, so to speak, outside the gate that, that wants them as well. All right. Is there... Is there an opportunity with um, contracts to extend time for these people? How do you how do you think you can manage that retention issue? So I, I won't speak for the Marine Corps. <laughs> that just just my personal opinion. I mean, typically when these we have these challenge, we have a challenge right now with infantry Marines. Our retention right now for infantry Marines is is very daunting. It's probably the worst I've seen in a while, and, and that's largely because there's, for lack of better words, there's not enough wars going on. Uh, these Marines join because they want to go. Common, they want to deploy, they want to go see the world and do what they came in to do. And it's just deployments right now for Marines are few and far between. So mm-hmm. when there's not enough deployments, Marines don't stick around. When there's too many deployments and Marines get broken because the op tempo is too high, they also don't stick around. So it's kind of a catch-22. Um, so for, for those fields where you have a hard time retaining, there's different incentives, whether it's monetary, uh, duty station preference, et cetera, uh, that we offer to these Marines of you know, critical skill jobs, mm-hmm. aviators is, is a case in point, too, that we've had a, a challenge retaining aviators where they offer them different bonuses, et cetera, to try to retain them within the ranks. Have you seen that retention problem affected most recently by what we all went through in the last 18 months or so during COVID? Has there been any difference in the way people are responding or signing up? I, I don't think COVID um, is, is, is really affecting it much. I, I think the only thing that the negative aspect of COVID on it is some of the units that are deployed. So when Marines do get a chance to deploy to go out Marine Expedition Unit, et cetera, the last several that have gone out haven't really done much due to COVID host nation concerns, et cetera. So yes, they deploy there on a ship, but they really didn't get a chance to go do training, either you know, multilateral, bilateral training, port visits in other countries, things that Marines typically look forward to on a deployment. Those haven't been happening due to COVID. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, may negatively affect the Marines that were able to actually get on deployment, and they didn't experience what they thought they were going to. Uh, but by and large, the rest of the Marine Corps that's been training for other contingency operations, which we, which we always do, that's an enduring task for us. I don't think that has largely affected them. It, as it applies to Pendleton, what has the last 18 months looked like? What's, what's it been like out on base? So I will say not as much has changed on base as it has out in town. Okay. Uh, so we've definitely had some restrictions. We've had to 
kind of preserve the the health of the force, specifically in entry level training. So as Marines come from recruit training to entry level training, school of infantry, et cetera, we maintain a bubble, so to speak, for them, just so we can preserve the integrity of that cadre of of trainees, so to speak, mm-hmm. as they went through the entry level training pipeline. So we can continue that uh, uninterrupted by COVID. That was a challenge. We worked through that, um, and then once we got them into units, obviously we had some restrictions on large gatherings, et cetera. Um, group physical training exercises and that kind of stuff. We kind of had to modify that. But at the end of the day, uh, training to our mission essential tasks continued. Uh, Our global force management, kind of our global responsibility to send Marines out um, to meet the requirements of the joint force, uh, to supply forces to the global combatant commanders, that was not interrupted at all. We still met all our requirements for that. Outstanding. Um, You said you've been on post now a year? I have, correct. So what's your takeaway on the Oceanside community, what's your experience been since you've been here? My experience at Oceanside has been fantastic. I mean, I think we're, we're fortunate to have such a uh, hospitable neighbor to our south, uh, and I think they, they go above and beyond uh, supporting our, our military, our military families, and our veterans, for that matter, here in the local community. Has, uh, have you had experience with uh, organizations uh, away from Vance, or has Vance been the primary source of folks that you've connected with? Uh, so in my current job, mm-hmm. Oceanside is primarily the one that I that I conduct uh, uh, community relations with outside the base. Mm-hmm. Uh, in previous jobs, when I was commanding officer of an artillery battalion, I had an adopted city was Irvine, so I did a lot of work with Irvine. They're, they had an adoption committee, and they had and we work with the Chamber of Commerce, et cetera. So I'm not, I am familiar with dealing with um, local communities. Okay, if there was anything, because we are an organization that focuses both on the military community and the local community. Is there anything about uh, Oceanside that surprised you? I mean, I'm a fellow East Coaster, so uh, being in California and seeing what a uh, city like Oceanside is like, anything that surprised you, anything you uh, didn't expect? No, I, I will say, you know, my 24 years in the Marine Corps, you know, I've been out in the West Coast for quite some time, and mm-hmm. it's, during my time, Oceanside is really... Uh, stepped up their game. Uh, I mean, just the improvements, economic development projects they have going on here. It's a much more attractive place for Marines, their families, et cetera, to you know, kind of come stay and play in Oceanside instead of going to some of the other Southern California communities. Okay. Um, I think I've gotten um, everything I want to take. Is there anything else you want to share with our podcast listeners to uh, let them know about yourself or what you're working on in the future? No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to entertain questions if people have some specific questions, you know, for the base. You know, I, I can't speak necessarily for uh, one MEF unit, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. but for the base, the installation, for the installation c- commander, you know, for the, my commanding general, General Woodworth, if there's any, you know, questions about the base or those kinds of things, I'd be happy to entertain them. Uh, and if there's something else you, you folks want to hear about, you know, by all means, let me know, uh, and I can help support. Thank you, sir. My pleasure.